listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. A while back, I was able to have dinner with one of my Christian mentors discussing our faith. I talked to her about the problems that I am currently having in my life and the difficult decision that I had to make. We also talked about how hard it is to live a life of faith, to humble yourself completely in front of God, walking along the difficult, narrow path. As we discussed this topic, I looked for her consent, asking her, right? Isn't living a life of faith hard for you as well? I thought that she would answer me by saying, of course it's hard. But her answer was completely different. She said, no, I am filled with joy every day. I am truly happy to be walking in faith with God every day. He makes me happy every day. She had no hesitation at all in her voice when she answered me, and she seemed truly happy when she told me that she was filled with joy serving God every day. As I looked at her elated expression, it made me remember all the grace that God has shown me that I have forgotten about. Through this experience, I was able to ask myself if I was truly happy at this point in my life. If I am happy, then why am I happy? If I am not happy, then what is keeping me from being happy? I began to ask myself all these questions. We will continue this discussion after the first song.
I was shocked when I heard her answer during dinner. But I'm still shocked thinking back to her facial expression and the way she answered my question. Her answer was completely different from what I had been feeling. I've been waiting for this hard time to just pass, saying, This is so hard. I wish that this time would just fly by. She was so different from me when she answered with confidence and joy in her heart that she was truly happy that she has Jesus in her life. That made me question and think about how fulfilled I was with Jesus in my life. Of course, it is easy to feel happy and joyful when God answers your prayers and you feel the presence of God. But I remember complaining about my life when things weren't going as planned, when one hardship came after another, and when it seemed like I had nothing compared to others in my life. But Apostle Paul confesses in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10-13, through 13, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. As you know, Apostle Paul went through a lot of hardship in jail as he was beaten and tortured. He did not have a lot of wealth. He also witnessed churches that he preached and taught with all his strength fall back to heresy or lose their glory and separate. It seemed as if all that he was going through and all that he was witnessing should have made him feel frustrated and defeated. But Apostle Paul did not complain that his life was hard. That is because his environment and what was happening around him no longer affected his happiness or made him feel despair. He learned to be pleased in any situation. The only thing that made him happy or sad was his relationship with God. He was able to feel joy and be happy because his relationship with God was right. That is why Apostle Paul is able to say to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Though the tears may fall, my song will rise, my song will rise to you. Though my heart may fail, my song will rise, my song will rise to you. While there's breath in my lungs, I will praise you, Lord. In the dead of night, I'll lift my eyes, I'll lift my eyes to you. Though the waters rise, I'll lift my eyes, I'll lift my eyes to you. While there's hope in this heart,
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is The King and the Furnace, based on Daniel chapter 3, verses 14 through 29. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. Now this very dramatic passage is in front of us, and the background to it is that 6th century BC, 600 years before Christ, Babylon is the uh, preeminent power in the world, and they are a great empire, and they've been conquering people. And one of the things they do, and what they have done to Israel, is they went in and conquered Israel, and then they deported, they exiled the professional classes. The professional classes, that is the artisans and the and the scholars and the people in government, the military officers, they took the professional classes and made them live in Babylon. Now, why? Well, that's a strategy, and the strategy is subjugation through assimilation. The idea was that these, that these other countries that were resisting the rule of Babylon, what you do is you defeat them, you take the professional classes, make sure that they, they grow up in the culture of Babylon, and in a generation or two, they will assimilate. They will adopt the, um, the, the values and the standards, and they will lose their own distinct culture and beliefs and, and, uh, and values, and, uh, and therefore will stop resisting the claims of the empire. And the book of Daniel is a story about one man in particular, one of the exiles, one of the Jewish exiles, Daniel, and his three friends, a couple of stories about them, including this one, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and about their confrontations in Babylon with the emperor with the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And this is a very famous passage, very dramatic passage, and we're going to learn three things. I'd like to at least point out three things from the passage. We're going to learn about the pressure of pluralism, the precision of true faith, and the promise of suffering, or the promises of suffering. In other words, we're going to be looking at the pressure, the precision, and the promises. First, the pressure of pluralism. Start at the top. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, in the first part of the chapter, this is what we're told. Nebuchadnezzar had built a giant image of gold, 90 feet high, and he had surrounded it with orchestras and put it in a very public place. The decree was, which is actually recapitulated here in this first paragraph, the decree was that if anybody was in that public place, was near, was able to see the image, if the music suddenly began, then anyone who could see it had to bow down and worship the image, had to bow before the image. And of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't do it. The decree was that if they didn't bow down to this image, they'd be thrown into the blazing furnace. That was the decree. Now, what did the image mean? What did it mean? It's interesting that if you read the whole chapter, you'll see that it's never given a name. You would think, well, it must represent one of the Babylonian gods, but it's never given a name. The Babylonians had a number of gods, but it's never given a name. And actually, Nebuchadnezzar gives us a hint as to what it represented in the very question. Uh, There's a couple ways of translating this because there's a little Hebrew word there that could be translated or or by. And here's what probably would be the best and most clear way to translate verse 14. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods by worshiping the image of gold I have set up? Very interesting. And it makes sense. The image of gold does not represent one god. It represents all the gods and the values, see, and the beliefs and essentially the culture of Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar knows that this is a multinational and multi-ethnic city. It's a pluralistic city. And there are people from many lands there, and they all have their different religions, and they all have their different gods. What he's saying is to everyone, I am not asking that you worship my gods, Babylonian gods, instead of your god. I am asking that you worship the Babylonian gods in addition He's saying, sure, you can worship what gods you want, but in public, bow down to the image. And so when you say, oh, you can worship your gods as long as you don't say your gods are the only gods. You can worship your god as long as you also acknowledge our gods at the same time. And of course, in the Babylonian culture, what that meant was 
you had to privatize your faith. You could, in private, you could worship the God of Israel, but in public, you had to be like everybody else. The values, the way you lived, had to be like everybody else. Now, here's what we learn. All great pluralistic societies, all great pluralistic cities, Babylon, Rome, and New York City, do the same thing. The pressure is the same. What all pluralistic societies say is, you can privately worship the way you want, but public culture, you must be like everybody else. Do not think that your religion has exclusive claims. You can be, you can be religious in any way you want in, pri- in private if it helps you, but in public, you've got to be like everybody else. And that is how all pluralistic societies work. It always seeks to assimilate you in the public culture by making you privatize your faith. Got it? So let me give you a couple examples of how it does it today. If you're a Christian and you're in the business world today, in New York, let's say, if you're a Christian and you're in the business world today, and all the people around you are ruthless in their business practices and just barely legal. That puts a tremendous amount of pressure on you because they're your competitors or they're your colleagues. And in a sense, they're your competitors even if you work in the same firm. You know that. Because the bottom line is, what are you producing? If you're a Christian and you decide, I'm going to have to be as ruthless, I'm going to have to be as barely legal as everybody else, then you have succumbed. To the pressure. You are bowing to the image. You, you say you're a Christian and privately you're a Christian and you say you believe all the things that Christianity teaches about uh, attitudes and relationships, etc. But when it comes to how you're actually living your life in the world, you're just like everybody else. You bowed. See? Uh, or let me give you another example and I'm going to get back to this book in about a month. But it's, it's too, uh, it fits this uh, situation, fits, fits the, the point we're making right here. Uh, a couple of sociologists recently have come out with a massive study at Oxford University Press called Premarital Sex in America. It's a, a massive empirical study of, of the uh, behavior, sexual behavior of younger people. And here's something interesting. There's two groups of men that they studied in this country. There were unmarried, college-educated males age 18 to 23. Got that? And they looked at two groups of unmarried, college-educated males, 18 to 23. One group were raised in communities in which they and their communities did not think there was anything wrong with sex outside marriage. And the other group were raised in churches and families where they did believe that there was something wrong with sex outside marriage. So you have two groups, unmarried, college-educated, 18 to 23. First, a group that say, we don't think there's anything wrong with sex outside marriage. And the second group says, we do believe that there's something wrong with sex outside marriage. The first group the group that says, I don't believe there's anything wrong with sex outside of marriage, only 23% of them are virgins in this country. The second group, the people who say, I do believe there's something wrong with sex outside of marriage, there are 28% of them are virgin. And sociologists said, in other words, there's two groups of people, one group that's raised and believe that sex outside of marriage is wrong, one group doesn't, but the way they're actually practicing their lives, there's no difference. I mean, the difference between 23% and 20% is essentially negligible. Why? And the sociologists say it's pretty simple. Your church tells you something about sex, your culture tells you something about sex, and you're believing what the culture tells you. So in other words, you say, well, I believe in Christianity, I believe this and that, in private, but in public, everybody else, you've succumbed, you're bowing to the image. And all pluralistic societies put this pressure on us to assimilate to public culture by privatizing our faith. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will have none of it. Now, we've got to be very careful here. Who are these guys? Now, you, you know, if you read the first two chapters and chapter three, you'll know this. These are not people who ha- are in a tiny little spiritual enclave withdrawn from the world. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with Daniel, are deeply involved in the culture of Babylon. They have gotten a Babylonian education. They are all working in public service. They're working in the government. They are deeply involved. They are deeply engaged they very much are part of the city. They're doing what Jeremiah 29 said they should do as exiles. They should love the city and pray for the city and work for the prosperity of the city, engage themselves in the cultural and economic activities of the city. But when they're asked to privatize their faith, they say no. And we don't care what the consequences are. It's very brave. I just want to ask you a question. If you're a Christian living, not just in New York City, but in almost any place in the West, you're under the same pressure 
If you don't know you're under the same pressure, you've given into it. If you are not getting any, if you're not getting a bloody nose ever over this, if you're never resisting the pressure and taking it on the chin sometimes, you've just given into it. Are you resisting? So there's the pressure of pluralism. Secondly, second thing we learn here is about the precision of true faith. Now, what do I mean by precision? Oh, now, all right. So Nebuchadnezzar is angry. They are not bowing down. What do they say? Go down to verse 17 and 18, two of the most wonderful uh, declarations in the Bible. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now look how remarkable that is. Look at the first part of that statement. They said, we believe that our God is able to save us. He can save us and rescue us from your hand. Not only that, they don't just say that he's, he can. We believe he, he will, he wants to. But if he does not, and literally in the Hebrew it just says, but if not. Our God can save us, O king. Our God, we think, will save us, O king. But if not, we're not going to bow down to that image. Now, Albert Barnes, one of the old uh, um, commentators, looks at this verse and says, here are men of principle, and I guess, and here's what they're saying, but I'd like to go a little further than just principle. You know what they're saying? They're saying, Nebuchadnezzar, we serve and love God for himself, not for what we get out of him. We serve and love God. We trust God himself. We love him for himself, not just for what he gives us. Do you see? Listen, I can't tell you how many times over the years as a pastor I've talked to people who said, I trusted God, I lived a good life, and then I asked him for some really important things, and he didn't come through. They didn't happen. So I trusted God, I really trusted God, and he didn't come through for me. Well, not exactly. You didn't quite just trust God. You know what? You had God balled up with your agenda. The real hope, the real thing that mattered, the thing that you really, really were, were really trusting in and hoping in was this agenda. And you thought, if I obey God and I pray to God, God will give me this agenda. And when the agenda didn't transpire, you're out of there, right? So it was, you really weren't trusting God. You were trusting God plus, plus, plus. God plus this, God plus that. God, and if it all happens, fine. If it doesn't all happen, no. They're saying, we just trust God, period. Not God plus, 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 God. We obey him just because he's worth it. We trust him and love him and serve him for himself, not for what we get out of it. You see how precise their faith is? (laughs) They are precisely believing in God, not God plus, 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 plus. And as a result, they can handle anything. In fact, you you know, behind this statement, he will rescue us, but if not, doesn't matter, may be something that all believers know. And that is, yes, God can always rescue you from death, but he will always, if you're a believer, rescue you through death. Because you see, if you die in him and you wake up in his arms, there's nothing but freedom and liberation and joy. And therefore, you see that you're always safe. When these men said... We think our God, we actually believe our God's gonna deliver us, but if not, we don't care. We're not gonna bow down to your image. They'd already won before they were even thrown into the furnace. They already won. They were spiritually fireproofed before they were physically fireproofed. Yeah, spiritually fireproofed, they could handle anything because they trusted God alone, not God plus, 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 plus. And therefore, they could handle anything. They were spiritually fireproofed before God actually did make them physically fireproof, which leads to the third point. And by the way, you can be too. If you're willing to, to be more precise in your faith and not just trust God plus plus your agenda, plus this, plus that, but God for who he is in himself. You want to be loved for yourself, right? Not for your money. You want to be loved for yourself, not for your looks. Because as time goes on, by the way, your money and your looks can go away. You hope when somebody loves you, they love you for you. Isn't that right? Why should God be different? In fact, why God isn't different. You should love him precisely for himself. And if you do, you'd be spiritually fireproofed as well. Now, that leads to the third. 
The third thing we see here are, I, I, I should have said, the promises of suffering. Now, um, what happens? Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 19. Now, you know what happens? Here's what happened. He is white hot with fury, and he wants the furnace as hot as his anger. And so what he does is he has his servants uh, heat the fire seven times hotter than it was. And they have, then he has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound and thrown into the furnace. And the furnace is so hot that the soldiers who are p- throwing them in die because of the heat. And then Nebuchadnezzar goes to some place, obviously far away, um, some vantage point, some place where he could look into the furnace. And he sees two shocking things, two shocking things. And the first thing is he sees these three guys walking around. They're just walking around. I mean, his soldiers died from just getting near the furnace, and here they are inside the furnace walking around. But that's only the first shocking thing. The second shocking thing is it's not just three. And the fourth, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is sort of at a loss for words. The fourth one looks, he says, like a son of the gods. And so they're saved. After all, they are rescued by God. What do we learn here? Well, in the Bible, furnaces are a metaphor. Fire is a metaphor for trials and suffering and trouble. And therefore, what we have depicted for us here are at least three truths that the rest of the Bible tells us about suffering that you need to know because you are going to suffer. Everybody is. So what are those three things? Well, the first one is the least important, but it's important to just mention here. First thing the Bible tells us about suffering is it's an inevitable. Uh, you know, uh, for example, Job 5, verse 7, dear, uh, man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. One of my favorite verses. But a little more pointed, 1 Peter four twelve. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. And I, let me indulge me here. I would, especially since we're in America right now, Americans are uh, the people on the whole face of the earth, Americans struggle with suffering the most. They, almost everybody else expects suffering to be inevitable, not Americans. We think if, there's some, if, if I'm suffering, somebody's doing something wrong. See, and there's a couple ways of looking at that. Uh, you know, one of them is just uh, you know I've often talked to Americans who say, "But I'm living a good life. I shouldn't be suffering." Okay, well, Jesus lived a perfect life, and his life was filled with suffering. So why should you have a pass? A pass, you know, a pass uh, yeah, because life, life, there are furnaces in life. The, there's fire. You will walk through the fire. So the first thing the Bible promises is, don't be surprised. And I, one of the reasons why it's worth to take another 15 seconds to mention this is. As a pastoral counselor, I have to tell you how often I've talked to people who are devastated this much because of suffering, and half the devastation is the fact that they're shocked that I even suffer. You know, it, you know the, devis- the, the, the effect would be half as great if they weren't... They're not just suffering, they're shocked that they're suffering, and the shock is half of what's de- devastating them. And get over that. It's, you know, everybody... I tell anybody who, you know... If you die an early death, that's pretty bad. But if you live to 50 or 60 years old or past that, you're going to suffer. It's just inevitable. It happens. So that's the first thing. But the second and third are are more important. The second thing that the Bible promises about suffering that is depicted here is that suffering, if you believe in him and you rest in him, then suffering will relate to your character like fire relates to gold. Suffering will relate to your character like fire relates to gold. So 1 Peter 1.7, for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, your faith, that's your character. It's like gold going through the fire. What, what does the fire do to gold? I mean, it's an intense experience, of course, but it actually makes it better, makes it more beautiful, makes it purer. What does that mean? Well, think of four things. Do you want to know your own heart? Don't you want to know who you are? Do you realize how 
what a mess your life's going to be, how many bad decisions you're going to make, how many bad relationships you're going to conduct, if you don't know really who you are and what's really in your heart, your strengths and weaknesses. Secondly, do you want to be a sympathetic person, a compassionate person, a person who really helps people, who feels, uh, you know, has a certain empathy and compassion and sympathy for other people? Do you want to really have a profound trust in God so that you really put all of your weight on him? Do you just want to be wise about life? You need suffering. None of those things are achievable without suffering. I mean, you might say, if, 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 you, if that seems outrageous, I don't have the time to make the case. Not here. But I'm afraid to a lot of you, you know it's true. I don't think that many of you think it's outrageous. There's no way to really know how, who you really are until you're tested. There's no way to really learn how to trust in God until you're drowning. There's no way to really empathize and sympathize with their suffering people unless you've suffered yourself. There's no way to really become just wise about how life works. Suffering, if you hold on to him as you're going through, suffering relates to character as fire relates to gold. That's the second promise. But the third promise is most important because, as some people are going to say, does it mean it's automatic? As soon as, if you suffer, you just automatically become a better person? No, we all know that's not true. Plenty of people have been broken by suffering, terrible broken. So what do you have to do in order to grow instead of be destroyed by your suffering? And the answer is you need to know, and it's most so beautifully depicted here, the Bible says, God says, if you trust in me, I'll be walking with you in the furnace. Isaiah 43, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be there. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you, for I am the Lord your God. I will be with you. But it's not just God in general. I mean, uh, who is this one who was there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That Nebuchadnezzar says, he looks like a son of the gods. And by the way, the word for gods there is Elohim. He looks like a son of God. But actually, by the way, did you catch it? Nebuchadnezzar does a pretty good job of nailing who this is because did you see, he doesn't just call him the son of the gods. He refers to this person one more time. It's in verse 28 when he says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel. And we're not just talking here. In the Old Testament, we've, I hope, you know, if you've been here for any of the, of the series, there, there are angels, but there's the angel of the Lord. And when the angel of the Lord shows up, it's not like Gabriel who says, here's what God says. When the angel of the Lord shows up, he speaks as if he is God. And that's who's in the fire. It's God in a visible form. It's God in a manifestation. And therefore, it is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus himself. And now, how can you get yourself to the place where when you go through suffering, it's turning you into gold instead of into something else? You need, this is what you need to know. You will feel Jesus Christ walking with you in your furnace to the degree you know that Jesus Christ was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you. If Jesus, if you remember that Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you, you will feel him in your cooler, smaller furnaces with you. Let me explain what I mean. Jonathan Edwards years ago wrote a wonderful sermon preached a sermon called Christ's Agony about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember how in the Garden of Gethsemane Jesus is, is struggling? He's sweating. He's sweating. And he's sweating great drops of blood and he's in agony. And what is that agony? Here's what Jonathan Edwards, here's how he interprets it. Edwards says, and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had then a near view of the furnace of God's divine wrath into which he was about to be cast, a furnace vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. Jesus was brought at the garden, in the garden, to the place where he stood and viewed its raging flames. He saw the glowings of its heat that he might know what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. The gospel is that you and I, because we don't love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, we deserve to be cast away from God. We deserve to lose God forever when we die. And because we were built for God's presence, to lose God forever means to be in agony. It's, me, it's hell. It's a furnace. But the, Jesus Christ came to earth 
and on the cross experienced that wrath that we deserve. In other words, he was thrown into the ultimate furnace, the furnace that we deserve. And that's how we're saved. When we believe in him, then that, none of that wrath comes to us. Now, at the very end of this whole passage, Nebuchadnezzar speaks prophetically more than he knows. He says, no God can save like this. See that? No God can save in this way. And that's right. And from the New Testament perspective, we know. Look at every other religion. Every other religion has, every religion has a way of salvation. Every religion has a way of salvation. But what is every other religion's way of salvation? It's if you live a good life, if you do this, if you do that, then God will save you. Well, what does that do? If that's your belief, what does that do when suffering comes? When suffering hits and you're trying to live a good life, you're either going to hate God because you're saying, I live a good enough life. I've lived a good life. Why are you letting this happen to me? So you'll be in despair that way. Or you may get down on yourself and you say, oh, I haven't lived a good life and I've despair that way. In other words, if you, every other God, every other religion gives you a way of salvation based on good works and performance and moral effort. And I want you to know, when you go into the furnace with that set of beliefs, it'll destroy you. The furnace will destroy you. You either be mad at God or mad at yourself or mad at both. But if you say to yourself, when you get thrown into the furnace, you say, this is a cooler, smaller furnace. This is not being punished for my sins because Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for me. And that means, oh, that means that what I'm going through right now, oh, if he went through that steadfastly for me, I can go through this steadfastly for him. And I also know that it means that if I trust in him, this furnace will only make me better. He suffered not that I might not suffer, but that when I suffer, I'd become like him. You see, if you remember Jesus Christ being thrown into the ultimate furnace for you, you will sense his presence in your cooler, smaller furnaces with you, and it will turn you to gold. No God can save like this God. Let us pray. Our Father, how grateful we are that um, though we have these great pressures to assimilate, though we, have, uh, though we have imprecise faith that just sometimes uh, confuses us because we tend to put our agenda in with, with you and your glory, though we have uh, furnaces that we find ourselves falling into and we're very confused, in spite of all these pressures and all these... Uh, difficulties. This text, as well as any text, tells us you're, you're going to walk with us through them. In fact, it tells us you have walked through the greatest furnace for us, O oh Lord Jesus. And we know that if we understand the gospel and we think about it and we understand, if we let our whole life and our mind be framed by the gospel, when suffering comes, it won't overthrow us. It won't shock us. We won't get, hate ourselves or hate you. Instead, It'll turn us to gold. Give us, O Lord, uh, this ability that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to very, very calmly, not angrily, say, we don't have to defend ourselves, O King. We love God for himself alone, and we know he is going to bring us through this. and Make us like them because we trust in the one who went into the furnace for us, Jesus Christ, and in his name we pray. Amen. You lead me 
Many of you are looking to listen to past programs. You can find them on the Heart and Soul homepage. Go to www.heartandsoul.org and find the listen button, and then click Special Programs. You can easily play this week's programs as well as past weeks. You can even download them to your computer. Otherwise, we can send you the past programs as CDs. Please contact us at 602-866-8999 or at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com Thank you. Following is a program called If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston, your host of the series, If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. Previously, we talked about the implication that you did not choose Jesus, but Jesus chose you. It's a great comfort and encouragement to us considering the fact that He knows us better than we know ourselves. He chose us even though He knows all of our flaws and that we would fail. Now we can approach the throne of His grace whenever we fail. We can move ahead in His full grace because we realize that we cannot live with our abilities and our righteousness on our own. When it happens, we begin to identify that there is another living being in us. As we come to know that another living being lives within us, we recognize and feel that it becomes increasingly difficult to live as we have been living before, on our own, 
in making choices that we think are good for us. We would think, I was fine when I committed this sin. I was fine belonging to the world. Why is that? It's because Jesus did not leave us like orphans. In John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus promised one who could help us. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Jesus would send a Helper. What does a Helper mean? In Greek, the word Helper is prokletos, which means comforter, defender, mediator. The one who comforts, moralizes, and prays for you is close to you. Jesus promised to send the assigned helper to those who decided to follow him. Why is that? Because we cannot follow Jesus on our own by ourselves. We need help. Because of the fall of man, it is not natural for us to willingly go that route, the route of the narrow path. Who is the helper? He is the Spirit of truth derived from God the Father. In John chapter 15, verse 26, what did Jesus say that the Spirit of truth will come and do? He said that he will witness Jesus when he comes. If he comes to us, then he testifies to us through Jesus Christ. He lets us see Jesus. And Jesus added to these words in the next section in John chapter 15, verse 27. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. He said that Jesus' disciples will testify as well. When we decide to follow Jesus Christ, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and walk the narrow road that leads to the narrow door to be with him, we are never alone on that road. The Holy Spirit of truth that comes from God is very close to us. He came right in us. And now he teaches us and gives us a glimpse of Jesus. He comforts us when we are in trouble or hurting, and he prays for us. He helps us go completely in the way of Jesus. Jesus tells us a bit more about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. Let's read the Bible verses from 7 through 11. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away... The Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. What does this mean? The Holy Spirit, the Helper, would be able to come if Jesus left. He would come to the disciples and aid them to the way they have been called. At the same time, however, He would condemn the world. Can the world really listen to such rebuke from the Holy Spirit? Will they have ears to hear? If they listen to the Holy Spirit, will they take Him to heart and be followers of Jesus? The Spirit of the Truth, the Helper, came to the disciples. How does he rebuke the sin of the world against judgment and against righteousness? Then what is the meaning of Jesus' words in verses 7 through 11? Because of what this world does in respect to sin, he said you must rebuke it to believe in Jesus. These words are easy to understand. Those who follow Jesus are those who believe in Jesus and walk away from their earthly desires. But if you do not believe what you are doing is a sin, then you do not believe in Jesus enough to follow him. Jesus said the disciples will not see him again. When he is with the Father, Jesus will no longer be seen. The world cannot see Jesus because Jesus is not here anymore. The Holy Spirit convicts the saved and helps them live a completely different life that is different from the unsaved. The saved will be shown to the watching world. This proves that it is possible for people who live in the world to live at a higher level than ever because of their different holy lives away from the world. So, 
The Holy Spirit condemns the unjust people that do not believe in Jesus. We were all sinners before being saved. No one is born righteous, so nobody can blame anyone, and people cannot have an excuse for their unjust failure. However, there will be a clear distinction due to the inheritance given to us by Jesus that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will help us live a holy life as we journey through the world. It also proves that the world has condemned the Messiah King. Through Jesus Christ, people who have received the Holy Spirit no longer live in the kingdom of darkness, but lives in the world of light. They are no longer dominated by sin nor punished with death. This is because the King of the world has received judgment. The Holy Spirit coming into this world and reproving, it means that it will reprove the world through us. So, is the world getting scolded by the way you live your life? Through your life in this world, is there any reproach or judgment against the world of sin? If you have accepted Jesus as your Savior and have come to salvation, the Holy Spirit's promise lives inside of you. He is helping you to build your faith that you are walking upright and holy, and He prays to give you strength. Do you live in accordance with His will and ask for His guidance? Each of us should examine our hearts and ask the Holy Spirit to bring to light anything that we need to correct in our lives. This concludes today's message in the series, If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. Thank you for listening, and God bless you and your family.
presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. Great is Thy faithfulness. Great is Thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, Thy hand hath provided. Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Great is Thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, many people live their lives and grow by experiencing all the good and bad that comes their way. We as Christians. Also, live our lives going through all the difficulties of the world, such as accidents and sicknesses. How are we supposed to respond and react to these difficulties? Are we able to feel happiness and fulfillment through Jesus Christ as we face these difficulties in life? Shouldn't we be able to be pleased and filled with joy, even with all that is going on in our lives, like Apostle Paul? Shouldn't we be able to face what comes our way because we have Jesus Christ in our lives? This is possible when our focus is on Jesus and not on our surroundings. This is possible when our happiness comes from our relationship with our Lord and not from what we have and don't have in our lives. Let's read Philippians chapter four verses ten through thirteen together again. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I hope that this confession can be my confession as well. I hope that all of us can be pleased, happy, and thankful with all that is happening in our lives in any and every circumstance. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to meet all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week. And God bless. You endured the shame and the suffering, Lord, on the cross. It says in Hebrews, Lord, that you finished your course, Lord. Tonight I sing it to you, Lord. I was the joy that was set before you. I was the joy that was set before you. I was the joy that was set before you, Jesus. Yeah, I was the joy that was set before you. I was the joy that was set before you. I was the joy that was set before. You. Sing it again to the Lord tonight. Yeah, I was the joy that was set before you. Do you believe it tonight? Yeah, I was the joy that was set before you. Now sing this to the Lord. Lord, you are the joy that is set before me. You are the joy that is set before me. You are the joy that is set before me. Come on, sing it to the Lord. You are the joy. You are the joy. You are the joy that is set before me. You are the joy that is set before me. You are the joy.
face to face, Jesus. You are the joy that is set before me. Can't wait to see you face to face. I can't wait to see you face to face, Jesus. You're the joy that's set before me. Yes, you are the joy that is set before me. You are the joy that is set before me, Jesus. You are the joy that is set before me. Come on, sing your love songs to the Lord tonight. Songs, oh God. La 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 la. 